0: Everyone, it's John Hanson. Let's Get Legal is just around the corner. We're powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. I'm a little fired up today. I'm not as fired up as David Hochberg always is. And I would say that lovingly. I'm fired up about a couple local issues, and I'm sure you are too. And We might have some time for some of your calls today. You know, this show's all about getting our expert opinions on things. But we have some time today for your thoughts about the assault weapons ban. And also, uh, Mayor Lightfoot's emails to essentially CPS students asking if they want to volunteer for her campaign. I know that's been one of the big stories of the week. Both of those have been. And the the part of the assault weapons ban, we focused on the ins and outs of it last week, is the idea that uh, lots of sheriffs in counties all across Illinois say they're not going to enforce it. And I find that interesting and a little peculiar as well. They say that it's up to their discretion and that they're upholding the Second Amendment. But what do they have an actual obligation to do? We'll chat about that throughout the show today. And I want your thoughts as well. That's got my blood boiling a little bit here on a Saturday afternoon. Maybe it shouldn't. And we'll also chat with John Nagel here in the first hour about that IRS bill. Uh, Well, the one that was passed earlier with the hiring of the agents and the most recent one passed in the House, which would have eliminated that. It's not going to pass the Senate, of course. And uh, we'll also dive into what it's like to be a public defender. We've talked about public defenders a lot Well, I've got one coming on the line at the 2 o'clock hour, too. We'll also do a question today. All that coming up next on Let's Get Legal on WGN. You're listening to Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, with host John Hanson. Today's show is sponsored by Attorney Patrick Dolan at Siegel & Dolan and Leonard Trial Lawyers. Now, here's John Hanson and Let's Get Legal. And a very happy Saturday afternoon, everybody, on a sunny Saturday Here in the middle of January, not too bad. Ever since that cold snap around Christmas, we are doing pretty darn well with our weather here in Chicago, especially for being the winter. Um, We were going to be here till three o'clock today. We got a lot of great guests coming up. We'll talk with John Nagel in a little bit about the IRS some crypto stuff, some really interesting um, laws and and the uh, myths about the laws that we'll get from an expert mind. And I have here at 145 in the rundown, John goes on a rant. Maybe we'll get to it a little earlier. Yeah, I'm fired up. I, you know, the assault weapons ban certainly is worthy of debate. And we did that last week, right? We played interviews from representatives on both sides. And, and look, you can debate this. All Of course, it's an important issue. And there's a lot of well-meaning people on both sides of this debate, for sure. And it's a good one to have. But I'm really fired up about so many sheriffs saying they're not going to enforce the law. Maybe I'm just a little biased on that and that, you know, maybe my side, maybe I favor the law a little bit more than not, although I see the other side of the argument and it just gotten my blood boiling. Um, but it it drives me crazy to hear that, and we have reached out to a lot of sheriff's departments asking if they want to come on, and I would love if there's any sheriffs listening, or if you know the sheriff in your county that does not want to enforce this, tell them to call right now, 312-981-7200. It's not for a lack of trying. I want this side of the argument on, and maybe you have a great opinion on it, too, and I'd love to have your call, 312 312-981-7200. And we'll get into this a little bit deeper, but since I've already opened Pandora's box here, let's get Jack on the line. Hey, Jack, you're on WGN. How are you doing? I'm good. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I can hear you. What are your thoughts on this, Jack? Well,
1: my thoughts in regards to the sheriff is concerned. If the sheriff doesn't want to enforce the law, then two things. Number one, he should be taken off off his job. He should uh, uh, not be allowed to be the sheriff. Because his job is to enforce the laws of the state, the county, and the country not to make the laws. If he wants to be a, make the law, then he should run for office and be a legislator. You know what's, Jed, what's two, interesting about that,
0: sorry, before you get to your next point, is some of those, in defense, some of those sheriffs say, I am defending the, the law, I'm defending the Second Amendment to the Constitution. I imagine you fall in line where I do, is that, But and you're every sheriff and every person, every radio host is entitled their, to their opinion on how they would analyze the Constitution, but it's the court's who ultimately decide how we read the Constitution and interpret it. And until they say that the assault weapons ban is unconstitutional, well, that may be your opinion on the Second Amendment. It's not the opinion of the courts until they say it is, Jack. And so that's you're why ab- I, I don't get why they would overstep their bounds there. You're absolutely correct. Second of all, you're not. nobody's going
1: to like this, any sheriff... That refuses to enforce the laws is committing obstruction of justice, which is a crime, which is actually a felony if he's a law enforcement officer. He not only needs to be arrested, he needs to go to jail and lose his position as a sheriff. He's committing a felony. The law says that he must, cannot obstruct justice and he has to follow the law, whether he likes it or not. Right. Now, I'm not in, I, I happen to not be against the guns. Mm hmm. But the sheriff issue is a separate issue. It's not his job. I agree. But I don't think people should carry assault weapons. I, I, I don't have a problem with carrying a gun. I don't have a problem with the concealed carry uh, law. But I do have a problem with carrying weapons that are are, are weapons that are assault weapons. They're not. Um, it, they weren't intended or made for that particular purpose for Joe Blow to carry him on the street and to carry him even have him at home.
0: Right. So that, now, Jack, I appreciate the phone call and you're sharing your opinion. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, for sure. That's Jack's thoughts. We'd love yours too. 312 91 7200. I'll save the rant. <laughs> I shouldn't have even opened this box unless I was ready for it. Uh, but I think you all know kind of how I feel about that. And, and by the way, even for laws that maybe the other side of the aisle supports, like when the uh, United States Supreme Court ruled that uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned, you heard, and it went back to the states many states' prosecutors said, well, I'm not going to prosecute these people for doing this. And that doesn't feel right to me either. I know a prosecutor has discretion, but if that's the law of your state and the law of the land, you can't just issue a blanket statement saying, well, I'm not going to prosecute people for this. That, that, That bothers me just as much as the sheriffs in this instance. You're officers of the law. I mean, I understand the idea of discretion. In fact, one of the sheriffs Boy, I'm going into this. One of the sheriffs said, Well, we don't always give everyone a ticket for speeding, for going 55 in a 50. There's, We're allowed to have some discretion. And that's very true. But you, as a sheriff, wouldn't say, We're never going to pull anyone over for speeding. If someone's going 100 in a 20 school zone, of course you're going to pull that person over. So if you're, you know, I understand discretion in certain circumstances, but as it applies to this law, this assault weapons ban and this, the provision about people having to register their guns after X amount of days or within X amount of days, I could understand a sheriff saying, well, you know, if we go up to someone and they haven't registered their gun, maybe we offer a little leeway. Hey, you've got two more weeks now that you know that this is the case. Okay, I'm fine with that, offering some discretion and some leeway, but you can't just issue a blanket. We're not going to enforce this. At least that's my thoughts on it, but I'm easily swayable. (laughs) And I want to hear yours, 312-981-7200. We'll get into that a little bit later on as well. I want to get John Nagel on the line. We'll do that after this on Let's Get Legal Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. Let's Get Legal Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. We'll get to John Nagel in one moment. I was uh, railing about sheriffs not enforcing the law, even if they don't like it, uh, about the assault weapons ban. Andy has another side uh, opinion. Andy, thanks for joining us today.
2: Ah, oh, thank you. Uh, yes, I I'm uh, calling to uh, to praise the sheriffs for doing what they swore their office to do, which is to uphold and defend the Constitution of the state of Illinois and the United States, just as our politicians swear when they were just sworn in.
0: Yeah, and, and, and that's what a lot of them say. They're defending the the Second Amendment, Andy. I just and I'm you know, I, I'm just curious though. I mean. We all I mean, the, the Constitution has been debated and analyzed, and we sway back and forth. You know, the courts change opinions. They overrule opinions. Isn't it up to the courts mm-hmm. to tell us what the ultimate determination is, not just any average citizen or any law, you know, especially someone who well, has the power of arresting people? Well, it's not up to us. It's up to the courts.
2: Well, but but they're going by what the Supreme Court has already done. They've overturned the Chicago handgun registration. registration right. Let me, let me pause legal. you right there, Andy. And you they've won't.
0: overturned. They did not overturn a federal assault weapons ban that existed for 10 years, and eight other states have assault weapons bans that are very similar to Illinois, and none of those have been right. overturned by the Supreme and Court.
2: Be- it's pending right now in the Supreme Court Fair. and uh, the it- New York case on the Bruin decision. Right. Because commonly owned weapons cannot be banned, and that's definitely what assault weapons are. They are commonly owned. Once, So when there's the Supreme- a lot of precedence in at right, the federal
0: level. No, and I appreciate. Sorry, and I don't mean to keep on interrupting you, Andy. I appreciate no, no, that's you calling. Fine, that's fine. I appreciate you calling. I yeah. really do. This is the kind of debate right. that we should have as as a country, uh, and I, and Absolutely. I welcome it. And I just wonder, though, shouldn't we add, wait for the Supreme Court to make a decision on the assault weapons ban, and well, then the, and then we go with whatever they say?
2: But again, I point to the fact that these decisions have already been made in the last ten years, in multiple decisions by the Supreme Court that has overturned those laws. That's why Chicago dropped theirs. That's why a bunch of other jurisdictions have had their laws overturned. And there's cases that are pending now further to go over it. That's why the sheriffs are reacting the way they did, because there is that. Pres- they didn't come up with out of the blue with this decision. They're looking at the totality of the situation. Yeah. And I will further add that if a soldier, police officer, or citizen was following a unconstitutional or illegal law, they would be held accountable for doing just that. And that's what I believe the sheriffs are pointing out. And that's where our politicians fail. If they don't like what they have in our laws, there's a process to amend our constitutions, not dictate law by fiat. That's my point.
0: Andy, I appreciate the call. Thanks for joining us, okay? Thank you. Okay. That's Andy's thoughts. I'm sure you have some, too. 312-981-7200. 312-981-7200. We'll have some time a little later this hour to continue to debate that, but I want to get John Nagel on the line. Not to make you play referee, John Nagel, but we'll uh, pivot here to, to something else uh, from uh, GordonLawLTD.com is the best way to reach those folks. John, how are you doing here on this Saturday afternoon? Hi, John. I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing very well. We've chatted in the past about all sorts of things. And today, I want to dive in a little bit quickly here to the IRS law uh, that was originally passed, that was about the hiring of extra agents, and now has been, well, proposed and repealed by the House of Representatives. I think I know the answer to this, but what does it mean now that the House has voted against this? So, the uh,
3: the House has really voted against that, They're trying to backtrack the law that's already been approved mm-hmm. and signed into law by the president. Um, so the current legislation that the House just passed is going to go to the Senate next. And there's almost a 0% chance that the Senate's going to even have a debate on this. Um, the House bill is going to reduce the $80 billion that's supposed to go towards the IRS funding over the next 10 years down to about $9 billion. And so that's a significant decrease there, obviously. And it's going to prevent the IRS from effectively collecting
0: tax um, to support our governments. So
3: I, I don't think it's even a, a serious debate that the, the Senate would consider.
0: You folks at Gordon Law, you're leaders in crypto law, tax law, business law. I'm sure you've read a lot of this law, the idea, the original law of uh, the $80 billion in funding. That 87000 number has really stuck with certain people. But correct me if I'm wrong, not every single one is going to be a new agent. And a lot of them, over the next 10 years that are hired, are meant to replace retiring agents. So it's meant to fill a gap and also prevent a leak. Am I reading that or misinterpreting that in any way?
3: No, you're reading that 100% correctly. So uh, over 50% of the newly hired IRS employees are going to be computer engineers, programmers to help get the IRS systems into the 21st century. Right now, the IRS typically only accepts um, any type of documents through fax. It's very outdated. And additionally, they're hiring a lot of customer service representatives, which is uh, one of the largest complaints I always hear from my clients is that they it takes two to three hours to get through to speak with someone and then when they speak with someone they they are unable or don't know how to assist them and they have to transfer them and they wait in line again for two to three hours so that's so by good. adding to the uh to the staff there at the irs hopefully it allows um taxpayers to be able to address their problems directly with the irs um in a much shorter time frame
0: so john i guess what i'm saying is um two things can be true one, the talking point that more people may be audited or will be audited because of these hirings, that can be true, but it also can be true that this isn't some army trying to take over middle-class Americans and audit everybody else and that they, sh- they shouldn't hire anybody, right? Like the answer, like most things in life, is somewhere in the middle, in the gray area, right? Uh, absolutely.
3: And um, although there are going to be a significant increase in examiners and collections agents, their, their goal shouldn't be to uh, increase audits on lower- and middle-class uh, taxpayers. They, they understand that that's not where the revenue comes from. And there's already been – it isn't part of the legislation, though. So they it, it could have examiners for any uh, tier of taxpayer. But I think it's obvious that the uh, higher the income, then the more likely it is that you could increase the tax revenue. By examining
0: those tax returns, right? And we've talked with other folks about this as well. The idea being that when some people say, "Oh, they're only going to go after the ultra rich, and they're not going to go after middle class Americans," that can't be entirely true either. In fact, I know that certain agents kind of make their way through the process. They learn the process by sometimes going after middle aged Americans, not middle aged, excuse me, middle income Americans, because they're easy easier cases to handle. You get training in that way. So I do think that there will likely be more audits than there were in the past. And that is a fair point to make. It just may not be this army that other people are are
2: saying. I, I agree
3: that a lot of IRS um, examiners do target uh, the middle class, especially for new examiners. Um, what their goal is by doing that is that they're relying on the average taxpayer not to attain counsel in representation of these audits. Uh, so that allows them a clear path to close audits quickly and to go through the process in full. Uh, so that's why it's important to reach out to a tax attorney or to a te- free tax clinic um, and have representation. As, as you pointed out, some new examiners are trained to go after these uh, almost low-hanging fruit. Right. I don't know how significantly that would increase because that would just be their initial one or two uh, audits, and then they would move forward, um, you, you would think, towards the... Uh, larger income sources where the government would be able to uh, raise more revenue. This
0: is John Nagel from Gordon Law Group. GordonLawLTD.com slash WGN, actually, is where you can go for a great consultation opportunity. Um, John, this is a very basic question, and I'm sure it's it's a complicated answer. But we've got taxes we're going to be starting to fill out here soon as we get our W-2s and 1099s and all that. What if you're looking at a bill that you owe at the IRS and you simply cannot pay it? It is too much and you do not have that money in hand. I am sure that happens to a lot of Americans. And the answer is not to ignore it and hope no one finds out, is it?
3: That, that's the worst uh, thing you can do is ignore the bill. So a lot of people are faced with this issue, especially with the market down in 2022. And they don't have an ability to pay the, uh, the taxes that were owed from gains they may have had earlier in the year. Um, if you ignore the tax bill, that's when it will progress through the collection process and you'll start receiving a notice and saying, if you do not contact us within 30 days, we're going to pursue collection action on your income or on your, your bank accounts. Uh, but as long as you are in communication with the IRS, you let them know that you are working on a plan to pay this balance down over time. Or if a payment isn't possible, you can provide them your financial information to show that after all of your monthly living expenses are taken care of, you just don't have the ability to make a payment right now. Mm -hmm. And, They'll place you into a, what's called a non collectible status, and they won't send threatening letters to you. They'll wait two, three years. They'll reevaluate to see if your situation has changed, and perhaps now you're able to make a payment and maintain your monthly living expenses.
0: Is that something so you should do on your own, or is, is that something is that something that you should do on your own, or is that something that we should get a lawyer like you to help us
3: navigate? <laughs> uh, typically, we would recommend getting an attorney to uh, represent you uh, if you're providing financial information to the IRS. Uh, There are certain uh, thresholds that you're able to take advantage of uh, when providing your financial information. Make sure you're getting full credit for all of your allowable expenses. Um, So the IRS will typically allow a single individual um, to have $785 a month for food and clothing and housekeeping expenses. That's not uh, typical information that anyone off the street would know. And they may tell the IRS, no, I only spend $500 a month. But then the price of eggs and meat goes up the next month, and now they see that they're spending 650 to $700 a month. So you always want to make sure if you're going to have these recurring expenses that if the IRS is allowing you to take that full amount, then – you're taking advantage of that in case there is a fluctuation like we've seen in the last couple of years.
0: Right, for sure. All right, I know you guys are doing a fifteen minute consultations. If folks go to a free fifteen minute consultation, if you go to gordonlawltd.com slash WGN. I'm gonna read that one more time. It's gordonlawltd.com slash WGN. John, you can hang around. I got a couple more questions for you, okay? All right, seven twenty WGN. Uh, this is Let's Get Legal. It's powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. And the text line is lighting up <laughs> about the uh, assault weapons ban and sheriffs and the IRS stuff, too. Continue to get those uh, questions on in. I appreciate it, especially all the folks that disagree with me. That's okay. That's what we do here on the show and every show on WGN. We chat about it. John Nagel will continue our conversation here. And uh, John joining us from Gordon Law Group. And uh, John we hear about scams all the time. Last time we chatted with you, I believe it was after uh, all the FTX stuff happened, and we wondered how the heck it would happen and how it impacted so many people. And there are millions of scammers all the time and millions of dollars, billions of dollars that people get scammed out of every single day. John, is there is there any help for you come tax time if you've been scammed out of money?
3: Well, your options right now are pretty limited. The uh, Tax Cut and Jobs Act that went into effect in 2018, it removed the ability to claim a uh, casualty loss on your tax return in most cases. Uh, so prior to that, you could take a deduction. If you, were, you gave money to someone and it was a, a trap, a trick, you could take that off as a tax write-off. Now, in most cases, that isn't an option that's uh, available to you. It's um, interesting, though, how these um, recent uh, FTX and uh, Celsius um, bankruptcies and charges were uh, could play out. Uh, the IRS made an exception uh, for Ponzi scheme losses. Hmm. So if the FTX um, trial ends up uh, resulting in what they, their actions reaching that Ponzi scheme level, there could be significant savings available.
0: So wait, let me make sure I got this correct. So if you get scammed by just one person who took your money and it wasn't a Ponzi scheme, you can't claim that as a deduction anymore, but you used to be able to?
3: Yes, uh, before the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, uh, you could write that off as a casualty loss. Um, unfortunately, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act removed a lot of the uh, deductions that uh, you were able to take uh, previously. Um, now to take a, uh, a loss, uh, there has to be a federally declared national disaster. Uh, the California there fires a uh, hurricane hitting your area. There really is not uh, much wiggle room
0: on that. Oh, so you, you can call, claim a casualty loss, obviously, if it's because of a natural disaster, not because of a scam resulting from a natural disaster. You know, you have all those scammers go in uh, after hurricanes and such, and it's horrible. If you get scammed money out after one of those disasters, can that be a casualty loss or no? That's still, that it has to be about the actual storm itself.
3: Yeah, unfortunately, uh, no, you wouldn't be able to claim it. It has to be directly related to the actual um, phenomenon that was declared a federal natural disaster.
0: And then for a Ponzi scheme, you're able to claim it perhaps, but it has to be It it, it can't be the media declaring it a Ponzi scheme. It actually has to be a court of law finding someone guilty under the statutes that claim it to be uh, a Ponzi scheme.
3: Well, they don't actually have to be found guilty for it. Uh, The first step would be the indictment, which has already happened in the FTX. Um, And then they can either admit guilt, which doesn't seem like he's going to do, as um, he said, he's he's pleading ignorance. Um, But if the court sees that... uh, before a preponderance of evidence that he's likely to be guilty and they issue a court order to freeze the assets, then that is a high enough burden reached in the IRS's eyes that you can go ahead and claim this deduction on your tax return.
0: Okay. John, we've talked, uh, again, six or seven weeks ago when the FTX stuff broke. I actually don't know how long ago that was. That was a guess. <laughs> Time is a, a cir- <laughs> is a circle now. Who knows? Um, but, John, has any, have there been any newer developments in the last couple of weeks that have opened your eyes or surprised you or finding out that there were certain institutions that had money in FTX that we didn't know about before?
3: Yeah, it's been uh, a very surprising to see how uh, involved him- himself and then also his uh, officers were in uh, the, the funds leaving the company in the, uh, the week surrounding the, uh, the bankruptcy. And uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see how this trial plays out. He's um, right now saying that his actions were just of um, ignorance of stupidity, bad business, business decision-making. And uh, he's been putting up up front with that on all social media accounts. So it'll be uh, very interesting to see how this uh, plays out in, uh, in court.
0: You wanted to chat a little bit about foreign reporting requirements. Um, do, do more people have foreign reporting requirements than, than we realize? What's what's the latest on that as it comes to tax time?
3: Yeah, I would say this is an area where a lot of people are genuinely surprised that they have a reporting requirement. So the threshold to have to file an FBAR to report any type of foreign bank accounts that you have is only $10,000. So if you have an inheritance from a granular that lives over in Europe or South America – and it's deposited into a bank account, even if it's just for a single day or an hour, you then have a reporting requirement to file the the FBAR form. And if you don't file it or it's not filed timely, the minimum uh, penalty that can be assessed is $10,000. So it's very significant penalties, and they're very large uh, for just one time of noncompliance.
0: What about if you have a spouse that you're married to that is uh, from uh, another country, and previously had like a had a retirement account that's still active in that country. Is that something that needs to be reported, or since it's not a bank account, it's not the same thing?
3: Well, it's the the typical lawyer answer here. It, it depends. So, if the account is only in your spouse's name, and if your spouse is not a U.S. Uh, tax uh, resident for for filing purposes, uh, then she wouldn't need to disclose the account. Okay, um, but if she is a U.S. tax resident now uh, through your marriage, then the account would need to be disclosed, even if it is a retirement account. If it's a Social Security account, then it gets a little more complicated and it depends on the specific treaties that you have with uh, the U.S. has with that country. So um, but there's uh, always some sort of uh, exceptions, a little twist on these rules.
0: Yeah, but right. But in right.
3: general, retirement accounts uh, do also need
0: to be disclosed once that threshold is met. All right, that's good stuff. Um, what are your overall thoughts here before we let you go, just as people are getting ready to start thinking about filing taxes? Just, you know, widen out a little bit. What are some important things for people to remember or plan on here as they go through the next couple of months?
3: Oh, I, I would tell everyone to start the process early. Uh there seems to always be some sort of surprise or unplanned uh, event during the uh, the tax filing season. Uh, So if you get the documents over to your tax preparer as soon as possible, you can discover that, oh, if you do have a balance hold, you can game plan how to address that balance. And as we discussed earlier, the IRS is hiring a bunch of uh, collection agents and are going to be more aggressive this year than they have been in previous years. So if you discover early that you have a balance hold, it'll give you time to prepare how to address it whether they're saying they a payment agreement with the IRS is appropriate or maybe petitioning them for some sort of hardship agreement that'll keep your assets protected.
0: When should someone reach out to you, John? When When is that moment in terms of dealing with the IRS? Is it is it beforehand if you know you have some issues? Is it after they contact you? When should people be going to GordonLawLTD.com slash WGN for their 15-minute free consultation?
3: Well, we actually can help with tax preparation. So as the tax documents are being issued – this next couple weeks here, then if you don't have a tax repair? we can assist with that. And if it turns out that you do have a tax balance owed for 2022 or for previous years, we can then go over the options to uh, get that repaid to the IRS or to settle it out perhaps or request one of those temporary hardship statuses where you don't have to make any payments and still keep your assets protected during this process.
0: Right, and you're able to help out with small businesses too if someone is brand new as an LLC or an S-Corp and they're a little confused about how that works. Is that something you can help with too?
3: Absolutely, yeah. We can um, help uh, taxpayers uh, through the decision-making process of determining if setting up an LLC or changing their business to the S-Corp election is the most uh, beneficial for uh, filing in, in the upcoming years as well.
0: All right. Sounds good. Uh, It's John Nagel at Gordon Law uh, Group. GordonLawLTD.com is their general website. But again, a free 15-minute consultation. Boy, that is nice to offer. And uh, when you go to this website, I just went to it myself, you can uh, schedule a consultation. GordonLawLTD.com slash WGN. And it brings you right to a calendar. You can see John's schedule and schedule 15 minutes with him. John, we appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure, John. Anytime. All right, GordonLawLTD.com slash WGN. Okay, we got a few minutes after the break to uh, have your calls. 312-981-7200, talking about the sheriffs who say they're not going to enforce the new Illinois State Assault Weapons Ban. Uh, 773 chimed in with, Law enforcement is under no obligation to follow or enforce the new legislation. It is a moral unconstitution unconstitutional and it will be challenged and overturned uh, that's their thought 708 says regarding government officials ignoring laws how is that different than cities ignoring immigration laws like sanctuary cities well that's a fair point too from the 708 we'll talk about that we'll get your calls in too 312 7200 any thoughts you have on that matter and plenty more coming up next And I'd love to have your thoughts right now. The lines are open, 312-981-7200. Your thoughts on either the assault weapons bill as a whole that just passed that uh, pretty much requires everyone that has one of these weapons already to register them within, I think, 300 days. And that seems to be one of the big sticking points that people have to the law, including a lot of sheriffs. Let me read you a couple of the uh, sheriff's departments uh, that have said that they will not uh, enforce this law. Which I find strange and I don't think is right, but people are bringing up great points on the text line. Call in to 312 7200. This is from the Adams County Sheriff. It is my personal and professional belief that this is another attempt to disarm lawful firearm owners and force a number of businesses out of Bureau County, oh, this is Bureau County, excuse me, and Illinois as a whole. Our legislators could make better use of our tax dollars and resources by providing law enforcement with legislation that focuses on the real sources of the problem in Illinois and not harassing law-abiding citizens. I may disagree with this part of the statement, but I—that um, I, 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 that is entirely within the right of a sheriff to believe that. And then he says that he believes his duty as sheriff is to protect the rights provided in the Constitution, including the right to keep and bear arms for defense of life, liberty, and and property, and then they won't enforce that part of the law. And that's where I would disagree. There's plenty other ones as well. Let's get Charlie on the line here as well. Hey, Charlie, you're on WGN. How are you doing today? Doing all right. Your thoughts on this? You're a lawyer, right? Comment. Excuse me? You're a lawyer, right? I sure am. Thank God. All right. Tell us Tell us your thoughts. We need, we need a legal opinion here.
4: Well, I'd like to separate the issue of the uh, assault weapons ban it, it, from the, what the sheriffs are doing because it could be about any constitutional issue. Um, so I think that the, that the fever of the issue, you know, gets 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 high, and then people stop thinking about what is really happening. Um, I have three points to make. Okay. The first is the um, the Supreme Court in the early eighteen hundreds already decided this uh, issue about how. Uh, laws are interpreted, and the court said in Marbury versus Madison, it is the supreme, it is the court that determines what the law is. And so, public officials should be very careful in saying that they get to decide what the law is, because the, because we have followed for over 200 years a system in which the court makes that decision. Um, the second point,
5: the supremacy clause
0: the, too, right? Like, I mean, that is a huge part of the Constitution, well, right?
5: The Supremacy Clause is a little different than, than the idea of that who gets
4: to decide what the law is. Oh, I see. Um, so, uh, but the state's attorneys just recently challenged the No Bail uh, Act, and they didn't just say they weren't going to enforce the law. They went to court, and they asked the court to declare it unconstitutional, and the courts put a stay on it because they wanted to look into it. So that's the right way to go about
0: challenging a law. And I would, the third point... I'd agree with you on that ahead. point. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say I agree with that. That makes sense to me. Go ahead and point number three, uh, Charlie. And, and number three is
4: um, we are getting dangerously close to a huge problem when law enforcement says they won't enforce a law uh, because the next step, let's say the Supreme Court says it is constitutional, and then others say, wait a minute, we disagree with the Supreme Court. We believe the Second Amendment means this. We disagree, and we will still not enforce the law. And and people shouldn't say that that can never happen because that already is happening in our country. Um, and so we have to be very careful about orderliness and who gets to make these decisions. And I would support what the Supreme Court said. 200 years ago that it's the courts to make this this decision and not the public officials themselves.
0: I agree with you that this really is a bedrock thing for our country. And I 100 percent agree about separating the issue of the assault weapons ban versus local officials wanting to do it or not. And it does worry me. I mean, there's sort of this, like, invisible fabric that keeps our country together, and that is that we ultimately respect what the courts decide. And that's why most presidents, Democrats and Republicans, sometimes issue very strong statements against what the Supreme Court does. But I always appreciate it when they sneak in a line of, of course, we respect the rule of law and what the court decides. To me, that's important to say that sort of stuff, isn't it? I I think it's really important. And the
4: strange thing about it is... That tends to be a conservative bedrock principle. And yet, we have people who are conservative, who have a conservative interpretation of the Second Amendment, that are not following another conservative bedrock principle. And, and that's why i think that it's the issue
0: that gets people all hot and they don't think through this carefully. Right. And Charlie, I have, I have another question for you and feel feel free to say this may not be your area of expertise, but someone did bring up a great point about sanctuary cities and i've been trying to read a little bit more about that. I know that's not a legal term, right? But there are local leaders that often ask their local law enforcement not to you know inquire about people's immigration status and then As a result of that, these communities don't typically honor requests by ICE to detain undocumented immigrants. Do you see that to be just as problematic when a federal agency says this is the law and the courts have backed it up? And then local officials say, well, we're going to ask our police not to necessarily do that, because I do find that a little problematic. If I'm going to hold a line and say sheriffs are wrong here, then I need to do a little self-reflection about some other things that I felt in the past. You know, that, that's clearly, you're clearly correct that there, there is an inconsistency there. The, the, the
4: difference here is that somebody is making the interpretation of what's constitutional or not. Uh, that, that's, that's what makes the assault weapons ban and the, and, the, and the current issue a little different from what you're saying. Um, it would be better for the, for the sheriffs to say, you know, we have a certain amount of discretion in how we enforce the laws. And we're going to take a more liberal approach on this until we get some
0: clarification. And, and that's that's yeah. what I say, too, because some of the sheriffs said, look, you know, when it comes to people speeding, we don't pull over everyone going one mile an hour over. And right. that's a fair point, right? There is some discretion, Same with prosecutors. They don't necessarily prosecute every single thing. They have some discretion. And that's an important part of law enforcement and in our court system. But to say blanketly we're not enforcing it, that would be like saying we'll never enforce a single speed limit law, like going 20 in a school zone. I would be okay if a sheriff said, look, after these 300 days, if you haven't registered your weapon and, you know, we're, we happen to find you or whatever the case may be, if they just happen, they see you with the weapon, it's not registered. I'm okay with the sheriff saying, all right, look, maybe you didn't know this law was in place. It is. You've got two weeks or a month to fix that. That's the sort of discretion I think is perfectly acceptable at a local level, but to blanketly say we won't enforce it and then compare it to speed limits, I think, is is a, is a red herring. I don't know if you agree with me there, Charlie. Um, we're on the same page. Okay. Charlie, I appreciate your legal perspective, all right? Thank you. All right. That's Charlie, who's a lawyer. Uh, 815 says, slowly eroding our civil rights, free speech, and Second Amendment. Don't you think this is getting out of hand? There's a movie about a country that has done this. It's called Schindler's List. That's from the 815. Um, interesting thoughts. I just, I feel like if you're going to defend the Second Amendment, and that's 100% your right to, then Charlie has a point that you should defend the courts, the Supreme Courts that have also ruled that it's y- not up to a f- local officials to interpret law. And as to the Sanctuary Cities debate I had there as well, um, there, there's a supremacy clause that is In the Constitution, that is, that the U.S. system of government, the federal power, is supreme, like it or not. So when there is a federal law or when there's federal interpretations of laws, that local officials can't simply ignore that. And I also made up this point as well. And the idea of after the Dobbs decision, which, of course, overturned Roe v. Wade, you found some prosecutors in states where now abortion was illegal, some local prosecutors saying, yeah, well, we're not going to prosecute this law. Well, that rubs me the wrong way, too even if maybe that's an idea I may be more prescribed to. So I, I just wish we could all strip the specific law out of the equation here. Let's not talk about this as an assault weapons ban and debate that. I mean, we can debate that uh, without a doubt entirely within our rights to do so. But if you take out the specific law and we just analyze, is it OK for local police officers, local sheriffs, local prosecutors To say that they are not going to enforce the laws of the land in which they live and are sworn to do so, it just just rubs me the wrong way. I don't know. I know John Williams talked about this a lot yesterday. It was his news click. So I'd encourage you to go vote there. He'll do the results on Tuesday, I bet. Go to WGNRadio.com for the news click. Uh, That's an interesting one. Okay. I think I've uh, (laughs) – I can get off my soapbox now. I don't often get one on this show because I'm not – again, I'm not a lawyer. It's just my honest opinion on things. I do have a question of the day, so let's do that, and maybe we'll get some answers after the news. So here it is. These two laws signed in back-to-back years were overwhelmingly passed in the House. They were overwhelmingly passed in the Senate. In fact, the divide of the votes was not based on party but instead on geography. So what are the names of the laws? What were the years that they were signed? Actually, just give me the names of the laws and we're good. 312-981-7200 if you got an answer to the question of the day or any thoughts about what's happening with the assault weapons ban and the sheriff saying they're not going to enforce it. After the news on WGN. You're listening to Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, with host John Hanson. Today's show is sponsored by Attorney Patrick Dolan at Siegel & Dolan and Leonard Trial Lawyers. Now, here's John Hanson. And let's get legal. Thank you, voiceover guy Ernie. It's two ten on WGN, and uh, we've had a great show so far today, analyzing uh, different aspects of the state's assault weapons ban, the tax laws, other things along those lines. Uh, we'll be chatting about the mayor's decision to have her staff email CPS students, kind of through principals and teachers, offering a chance to work on her campaign. She has since sort of apologized for it. I don't know if I would determine an apology. Yeah. It took three tries, but she admitted it was wrong after first staunchly defending it, I might add. She admitted it was wrong, and the staffer wasn't fired. Uh, But we'll chat a little bit about that with Mauricio Pena. He uh, works for Chalkbeat, and they cover all sorts of education issues. Uh, We're going to find out whether what that was is illegal or if anyone's looking into that. I'm sure they are. We'll get to that in a little bit. And uh, with the assault weapons ban, we have so many great texts. Carol chimed in. She says, hi, John, with the great divide in this country— do you think it would help to clarify what the founding fathers intended with the Second Amendment? After all, nowhere does it mention that someone has the right to bear arms to defend home property. A person It only states you have the right to bear arms being necessary for a well-regulated militia. And a strict reading of the Second Amendment does show that, although it's been interpreted by the courts differently. The courts don't feel that way. The courts, as they are now, feel like it is it must be really extenuating circumstances to ban someone from having a weapon. And that's... The court's prerogative to decide that and agree or disagree, you must follow the laws of the land and the assault weapons ban. This is not something new. It is new in Illinois, obviously, as it's going to be signed. But it was a federal law essentially for 10 years and it was challenged multiple times. But those challenges were rejected by the courts. Could this court ultimately rule differently? We may find out soon. Maryland has an assault weapons ban that is currently in the court system that is in front of the appeals courts on the East Coast. Okay, that may end up in the Supreme Court, at which point the Supreme Court may say states cannot ban assault weapons. And then guess what? The Illinois state assault weapon ban, gone. That is a court decision in my opinion and other opinions too. But many sheriffs in Illinois say, nope, I'm not going to enforce that. And, Bob, I think you support those sheriffs. Am I correct in that interpretation? I do,
6: and I think they have an obligation to enforce laws that they deem are constitutional and not enforce those that are not. And I'll give you a reason why. Let's say that the state legislature passed a really egregious law. But, you know, something like uh, people of one ethnic group had to wear a emblem or people with red hair are illegal or something, something absolutely crazy. If, if before it gets into the courts, which might be quickly, but still the attorney that was just on, and maybe your opinion is that we should go ahead and enforce that law. Every single time there has been crimes against humanity. It's I was following orders. Hmm. And I think that's where we're look, what we're looking at this is saying, well, we passed the law, start enforcing it, even though they believe that sheriff believes that it is not constitutional. So I think he has an obligation. Now, I use a very, very extreme. Example. No, but I
0: appreciate it. It did. It, it so, gave me pause. It gave me pause, Bob. It gave me pause. I will say okay. that.
6: All right. I mean, that's. I, I think that's why. Now they may be, you know, maybe they'll be chastised at the ballot box. Maybe,
7: mm-hmm.
6: but for them to say, "I don't think this is constitutional," <clears throat> and therefore I am not going to support it, and I think it's—it turns out that the sheriffs really, really don't enforce it anyway. But I think the state police have the same should have the same position. Mm-hmm. I Do- think that the local law enforcement has, should have the same position. We can't just follow orders.
0: Yeah, it's you bring up a great point about the idea of an emblem, right? And I, I know what you're alluding to. You know what I mean? I, of course I do. Of course I do. And it's Bob, you made me pause there. I, I do feel, and you're right. If if someone passed that, I think most of us would say no, do not enforce that. That is absolutely wrong, and we would right. chastise officers for doing it. You're right, and and.
6: And so but why I, do, I do. I guess I would well feel that now, that would
0: go quickly through the courts as a very quick violation of the First Amendment and toss. And I would trust that that would happen quickly. But you're right; there would be people tossed in jail in the meantime, and and yes. that's not cool. That's not fair. So I, you you bring up an interesting point, uh, Bob. I will certainly give you that. I wish I had an alternative, but I don't. <laughs> yeah, right. Because I just don't. Because I I. I you're right. That would be so extreme that I wouldn't want someone to enforce that. But I don't want to get down this road where then, like, let's say, so we have laws in the state about, you know, kids being left unattended. You know, I live in Downers Grove, and there's, you know, laws about, like, you can't let a five-year-old babysit a two-year-old for three hours. If a state's, right. if if, if paid sheriffs decided and, and local municipalities said, you know what, that's intrusion into the family structure of life, let kids do what they want to do. Should we let them ignore those state laws? I guess that's that's an example on the other side of the argument, yeah. right, Bob? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> Wouldn't that the be crazy to on, let them it, do that?
6: Yes, it would. The yeah. point, I guess, where I was going was, is that sometimes we can't wait for the court. Yeah. In other words, you know, because this, this law is going to be challenged. It will be. 100%. And who knows which... And, and if it goes to the Supreme Court, it could take a year. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, yeah. we, we could actually prosecute people under a law that is not going to pass a constitutional muster.
0: Right. <clears throat> yeah, that's an interesting so, point. It is. And, and I, yeah. I don't know where it's going to end up, but I think reading the tea leaves, you're, you might very well be right. And we yeah. may know sooner than later because Maryland, again, is going through this, this similar thing. Yes. yes. So Enjoy the show. Bob, you made me scratch my head there. I like it. Have have a good one, okay? Okay. You too. Bye-bye. I love our listeners. (laughs) I was so ready to slap Bob down with an argument, and he stopped me cold in my tracks. 312-981-7200, you're more than welcome to do the same. I appreciate the phone call there. Uh, Let's try and get an answer to the question of the day. These two laws signed in back-to-back years, Omer overwhelmingly passed in the House and in the Senate. In fact, it uh, didn't divide the voters based on party, but instead on geography. Let's go to Mike. You're on WGN. Hey, Mike, what are the two laws I'm talking hey. about? Well, anyways, I want to go
5: back to Bob. And okay. that was a great debate there. Yeah, wasn't that it was good? was fantastic. I, I like to listen to he might, should He should be a regular on your show. Yeah, Bob, get, call on back. You're welcome any week.
0: <laughs>
5: yeah, that yeah, would it, be awesome. Right, that was so good anyways, stuff. Uh, I think the uh, two laws... Had to do with MLK Day and President's Day, and I would say somewhere in 89, 91
0: under Bush or, yeah, Reagan. Something like that. Boy, you know, Mike, that's not the answer I had, but I'm going to look that up because you're right, MLK right. Day was passed very overwhelmingly, but there were some geographical differences. I know Arizona was very upset by passing that law. And, I don't and there know. There were if- geographical differences with President's Day and MLK Day. I think it's more east to west of Mississippi. I'm going to look that up. It's not the answer I'm looking yeah. for. but I, I think uh, that I might have a little debate. Yeah, you might. You. <laughs> Mike, uh, we'll keep your <laughs> we'll, uh, Can you write down All Mike's right, phone? Brother. We'll write down your phone number, uh, Mike, just in case you uh, happen to be right there. <laughs> Thank you so much. Let's go to Reed. You're on WGN. Hey, Reed. Good
6: afternoon, young man. How are you? Okay, so. I'm I'm good I'm good. Your show is very um, thought provoking and entertaining. I appreciate I must that. Say. Thank
0: you very much. What are your two laws, the two laws do you think? Oh, thank but, you.
6: Well, I I'm, I, I like the when you litigated the uh, Grinch thing and, uh, I think <laughs>
0: with Mike Leonard on Christmas Eve. Yeah, that was fun. That
6: was that was really funny.
0: Thank you for okay, saying so. Okay,
6: so I'm going with the Black Code Law and the Jim Crow Law.
0: I can't give it to you because those aren't the names, and I think the Jim Crow law is a little bit different. You're on the right track, Reed. So thank you for calling. You're going to help someone else out with that call, Reed. Thank you for listening too. Okay. Sure. Yeah, thank you for the kind words. Three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. If you have any guesses, all right, let's take a break and we'll uh, chat with Mauricio Pena from Chalkbeat after this on WGN. Two three one says, do you have the same opinion uh, regarding sanctuary cities ignoring federal law? And yeah, I talked about that in the last half hour. The idea of well, boy, I mean, we should really look at it. if I if I am on the page of that local officials should not be ignoring certain laws, then you, yeah, I guess I shouldn't. I shouldn't be okay with any local official ignoring federal laws about immigration and sanctuary cities and what ICE wants to do and deportation rules. Yeah, I've got to be consistent there. So I guess I have changed my mind on that. Um, Lots of other thoughts coming on in here. 312-981-7200 is where you can call to try and answer our question of the day. Let's go to Don. You're on WGN. Don, we're talking about two laws signed back-to-back that were passed by the House, the Senate. Uh, then they were, uh, in fact, not uh, an issue, a party that p- led people to disagree, but geography. So, Don, what are the what are the laws? What are you thinking? That you're, you're with respect
5: to the assault weapons ban. Oh, correct? you're talking
0: about that. Oh, sorry. I thought you were calling about the question of the day. My My apologies, Don. Uh, yeah. You want to talk about local L- officials enforcing L- law. What are your thoughts?
5: OK, so I made the point that Bob, I think it was Bob made a couple of days ago. I was listening to John Williams and I texted in. There's a lot of people that listen to WGN that grew up with laws where minorities could not drink out of certain drinking fountains or use public bathrooms. So to those people, this is not as abstract as I I, I say this, and to a lot of people it will be abstract because, I mean, if you're less than 45 or 50 years old, you probably don't know a lot of people that grew up in Jim Crow laws, Mm -hmm. right? So those Jim Crow laws are the. Well, I've made the point to John a couple of days ago, just via text, and I said, "Okay, so what if some? What if a what if a state does that? And Then should we not have the sheriffs enforce? Should we have the sheriffs enforce those two? Right. And of course, I would hope nobody wants that. Of course, but the the bigger point I make is, I, I'm a. I, I shoot guns. I own these weapons that are outlawed, and I love that this happened. I was happy that this passed because the more because this creates controversy, and the more controversy there is, the more people may want to learn about this, and if they do, I invite them to go on whatever YouTube or whatever, and listen to the court case that just happened seven months ago, right with respect to gun rights in New York only seven months ago I mean we just we just did a Supreme Court case that I believe and probably. The court will believe violates this. Maybe Seven so. months ago, and 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 then download the PDF of the decision, and it's two hundred pages. But spend fifteen minutes of pop reading it, and it's fascinating what these people talk about. Yeah,
0: and it's and agree agree or decisions. disagree. Agree or disagree. I like reading yeah, dissenting learn about opinions it. too. Learn about I, yeah, it. yeah. You've not- had
5: three major cases in the last fifteen years. The Heller case, the McDonald case, which was Chicago-specific, and the Bruin case, New York-specific. But if you listen to those on YouTube or SCOTUS blog, and then you go download the PDFs and spend some time reading them, you will be way more in tune with what is
0: constitutional. Don, I got to go, but I appreciate your points, and thank you for sharing them with me, okay? Hey, Thank you. Bye. I'm all in favor of reading as many SCOTUS decisions as you possibly can. All right, we're going to pivot here for a little bit. Mauricio Pena joins us now from Chalkbeat to talk about Mayor Lightfoot and the uh, emails sent through CPS students, uh, two CPS students. Mauricio, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. All right, can you just give us, for those that have been under a rock this week or maybe weren't paying quite attention to it, Iridian says that might be her as well. Can you walk us through exactly what happened? What's the TikTok on this?
8: Yeah. So um, on on Wednesday, we found out through the reporting of Heather Sharone that at WTTW, that um, Mayor Lori Lightfoot's campaign had been sending emails to uh, teachers soliciting student volunteers uh, to help for in her reelection bid. Um, since then, um, there is now an investigation that is underway by the district's inspector general. Um, The city's board of ethics will also be looking at whether the outreach violated the city's ethics policy. Um, So that, in a nutshell, is is kind of the the breakdown of what has happened since, since Wednesday.
0: Do we know if it was like a blanket email sent to every teacher in CPS or were these individual emails looked up by the mayor's staff through publicly available means? Do we know? Yeah, it, it appears that
8: um, that it's the latter that um, uh, that these emails were sent through. Um, you know, uh, any email that was available through like a Google search. I reached out to teachers and spoke to some. It wasn't. Um, I, I think at her school at North College Prep, there was about eight or nine folks on campus that received it. So it wasn't everyone in the building. We don't know how uh, widespread that that was um but we are trying to figure out how how many people exactly were received these emails
0: and the emails specifically because i kind of read through them and in some certain yeah it wasn't you have to vote please or you have to volunteer it was like to learn more about you know your government and how it works you can volunteer for credit perhaps uh, to to work for the campaign have we nailed down who like was going to allow credit to be given or for grades. Like that seems to be like an extra element to this, that seems like there would have to be some involvement with principals and teachers to determine credit given, et cetera.
8: Yeah. It's not clear as to how, um, this person on the mayor's campaign came to the decision that, that they would be giving credit, um, to students for whatever volunteer work, um, would have or possibly would have been done um but yeah that would that would take some coordination with teachers and um and presumably administration to to um figure that out but at at the moment it's not clear as to you know how this decision was made um to promise credit for any volunteer work that that would have been done by students.
0: Okay, so a watch group is looking over this now. Is there? Is that all done through the city of Chicago? Have we heard anything about, I don't know, any other local officials who are going to, like an inspector general or even a prosecutor who's looking into this? Or as of right now, is it just the watch group? As of right now, it's the school district's inspector general. It's not clear. Um,
8: I haven't heard whether uh, the city's inspector general was looking into this. Um, But the city's board of ethics will be looking into it and it'll be the subject of the hearing, which is happening on January 23rd um, to see what what, if any, you know, violations may have taken place um, in these emails. Um, And and just to note, um, it was also reported that, um, you know, we we ended up finding out that city colleges of Chicago also received this this similar email um, back in August. And and their um, ethics department notified the campaign saying, "Hey, you can't do this." Um, and so that that happened back in in August, and now <laughs> these emails were once again sent out to CPS emails this week.
0: There was a couple uh, responses by the mayor's office. First was more of a defense of it. We've now gotten, of course, to yesterday's press conference that was a little bit more of a mea culpa. Sort of. And uh, that's where we are with the latest. At least that's my interpretation. I'm not putting words in your mouth, Mauricio. Uh, We're out of time. Mauricio Pena from Chalkbeat. Thanks for joining us and breaking that down for us. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. Mauricio is such a great reporter, and we appreciate when he comes on WGN. And he gave a shout out there to Heather Sharon, who all of you probably know from the Mincing Rascals and a frequent guest at TTW who uh, broke the news originally. All right, we're going to talk to a public defender after the news. If you have any questions about what it's like to work in a public defender's office, now would be a time to get those in. I've got a bunch of them. Uh, He's a private attorney, too, and that's often how it works. We'll take some more calls about the gun ownership and the sheriffs and hopefully get an answer to the question of the day all coming up. Well, it's been a great show so far here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. And I really appreciate all the texts and calls, um, not only with the people that agree with me about what the sheriffs are doing, but just as importantly, the people that disagree with my take and have really made me think about it. I think I've refined my position a little bit. I'll share it a little later on before we end the show. If anyone's interested, maybe that'll help you uh, guide yourself. It's a lot of constitutional decisions we're weighing in our head today. We also have a question of the day today. These two laws signed in back-to-back years were overwhelmingly passed in the House. They were overwhelmingly passed in the Senate. In fact, the divide of the votes wasn't really based on party. Both parties seemingly agree, but instead it was based on geography. What am I talking about? Let's go to Jack. Jack, you're on WGM. What's your guess?
5: Well, my guess is the uh, Civil Rights
4: Act
0: in 1964 and the Voting Rights Act in 1965. I wish I had my ding, ding, ding uh, uh, alarm here ready to go. That is the answer to the question of the J, Jack. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> yes, thank you. I was uh, looking for
1: program. And uh, the one during the week too.
0: Hey, thank you. Yeah, your money matters Monday through Thursday, Jack. I appreciate that. And I was actually just really, in, you know, I was I was curious about whether those laws had passed overwhelmingly. I know they obviously passed over sixty votes in the Senate because that would be needed to invoke cloture and not to have a filibuster. But they were like seventy-eight to twelve. Uh, both of them were in the Senate, and almost just as overwhelmingly, basically 80% of lawmakers voted in favor of the Civil Rights uh, Bill and the Voting Rights Act of 1964 and 1965. Jack is going to get a desktop weather station from American Weathermakers Heating, Cooling, and Plumbing. The 60 Minute Visit AmericanWeathermakers.com. Okay, 312 981 7200. Have got a lot of thoughts. We're going to get to some more about the uh, assault weapons and all that sort of stuff in just a minute. But I've been wanting to t- chat with our next guest for a while now. Uh, Benjamin Lawson joins us. He is a uh, well. He has a private law firm. He's a part of as uh, Lawson O'Brien, Lawson and O'Brien. They're out of Kankakee, but he also works as a public defender too. Benjamin, it's so good to talk to you, my friend. Welcome to WGN. Yeah, John, great to talk to you. Yeah, we've been exchanging messages for a while now. First of all, what do you guys do at Lawson and O'Brien? Well, we're a general practice
7: uh, litigation-based firm, so we do a lot of uh, divorce work. We do criminal defense
0: and some civil litigation. How do you end up also being a public defender? Is that pretty common, having someone who works for a private firm also have to do some public defender work?
7: Yeah, it's, it's not all that uncommon. Uh, a lot of the downstate counties, uh, they they do a kind of a mix of, of full-time public defenders and part-time public defenders, and that's that's what Kankakee does as well. So a lot of the private bar uh, will kind of you know, do do some work for the public defender's office here and there, but uh, there's, a, there's a number of
0: part-timers in that office. So how does it work? Is it like a bat signal in the air that someone needs a lawyer? Like how do they how do you find out it's your day to help someone?
7: Well, it's it's uh, we we just work, I guess, a smaller caseload in theory at least than the than the full-time. Uh, PDs. But, you know, we, we handle cases in much the
0: same way that the, the full-timers do. It's just we have a, a, a few less. Okay. So is it a matter of they get randomly assigned to you, or is it evenly divided? Are there certain days of the week you put on your public defender's hat? I'm just kind of curious about the actual semantics of how it uh, it works in Kankakee.
7: Yeah. Um, well, it, it's, not, uh, it's not quite as cut and dry. I mean, I, I think they're just they're assigned uh whenever cases get assigned and, and we just get a few less than as part-timers you know having uh having worked in criminal defense for a while uh, i do also the majority of the cases i handle now are felonies so the the caseload for the felonies is generally smaller uh so i, I end up uh, working you know roughly i mean in theory 20 hours a week as a public defender but it, it ends up usually being a bit more
0: than that. Wow. That's a lot of time, especially with the private practice as well. Is it a, and you don't have to tell me how much you make as a public defender. That's not what I'm asking. Is it a, because fl- <laughs> you should, I mean, every public defender should get paid. They're doing hard work uh, on behalf and, and upholding the system of law that we have. Everyone's entitled to that defense. Is it a flat fee or if it's a case, a trial that lasts forever, is it more like, how does that work?
7: No, it Actually, I think it does save the county some money because it a, it's a flat fee salary but uh, I think it, it would be more expensive for the county if they were to do what some counties do which is essentially pay on a case-by-case basis so at, at an hourly rate so that's that's not what Kankakee does we, we just do uh, a flat salary for part-timers and then you know we step in as needed
0: yeah I in you know I, I know a lot of counties do that uh, as you mentioned downstate some people worry that if it's a flat fee that then- public defenders are going to only want to plea because it's quicker and you know they get their flat fee and then they're able to move on as opposed to a longer trial and you know i imagine that is a tough thing to navigate but ultimately i imagine as a public defender your role is to do what you think is best for the defendant whether it is going to be pleading or not is that a hard struggle in your brain to navigate those waters
7: yeah i think that's something that
0: every public defender has to has to face is
7: the the thought in people's mind that uh, yeah, as a public defender, we're not working as hard for the clients or that we're not, uh, some, some people say we're not quote-unquote real lawyers. Um, the, the truth is, I, and, and at least in my practice, I don't distinguish at all between my, my own private clients. I, I do handle uh, criminal defendants uh, privately in, in our private practice, and I don't draw any lines or distinctions between how I handle those cases and how I handle the public defender case.
0: Interesting. Do you feel like public defenders get a bad rap in the media?
7: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think, uh, I think people sometimes misunderstand the role of of public defenders. Uh, If you look at the justice system as uh, people have this misconception that it's, it's good guys versus bad guys. And I think that's, that's kind of a misconception of how the the system works. It's, it's really more that there's a, there's a prosecutor on one side and there's a, there's a, defense attorney on the other and somewhere in the middle, you're going to get something maybe resembling the truth, but it it is a very common misconception that, you know, the public defenders uh, are, are representing bad guys because they, 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 they like that. Um, Yeah. I think the most common thing is, is people ask me, you know, how how can you, how can you defend these people? Right. And uh, you know, the, the the truth is I'm not defending a murder or, or, Burglary or theft or anything like that. I'm, I'm not trying to convince anybody that those are those are good ideas, that they're right or or, or anything like that. I'm, I'm trying to defend a specific person. I'm trying to defend that person's rights and to make sure that the process unfolds in a way that is legal and uh, that the person uh, who's accused of the crime, no matter what kind of crime it is, no matter how awful it is, isn't convicted using illegal evidence or tricked into doing something they don't understand. Uh, I'm, I'm here to make sure that the, the process works the way it's supposed to.
0: Right. Well, you're there doing the thing that then ensures that if I am innocent and in charge with something, that I'm not going to, you know, I'm less likely to go to jail because if the laws are followed to the letter of it, whether someone is completely guilty or they're completely innocent, it doesn't matter Defending that every day makes it more likely that someone like me, if I was innocent, I, I would hope so, uh, would be defended, right?
7: Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I think all it takes to, to realize that is just maybe a little bit of healthy skepticism because the state makes mistakes at times. They're, they're people, too. The state's attorneys are, are human beings, and I think they'd be the first people to admit that sometimes they get things wrong. And if somebody's accused of a crime that they didn't do, I think it's unequivocally a good thing to set that person free. And, you know, to be clear, I I don't want to say it's also it's not necessarily the fault of the police or the prosecutors when things get mischarged. Sometimes, you know, people come in and they say things, they say false things to the police. And it's and, you know, it's important to listen to people and to believe them. But it's also just as important to weed out the people who might not be telling the truth. Right. And that's part of what my job
0: is. Do you feel like you're better in your private practice? And again, we're talking with Benjamin Lawson from Lawson O'Brien. Do you feel like being a public defender, uh, part of the time, makes you better in your private practice?
7: I think it's it's something that my partner and I agreed when when we first uh, joined up in in 2014 that it was very important to both of us, um, and that's part of what makes our our partnership work. Actually, is we're both part time public defenders. And we're both really passionate about public defense work. And you know while it's true that it's not the most lucrative job in the world, and we probably could make more money doing other things, both of us really enjoy it, and both of us are committed to it. And so it's I think it's what what makes it's what makes a job worthwhile for me. it's a, it's a job that I love doing. And I think it's probably fair to say that most public defenders don't do it for the money, but it it is something that keeps me continually interested. It's a it's a very diverse caseload and something that I really look forward to doing every day.
0: Part of the Safety Act, and don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to give your thoughts on it in general, but uh, which is now, of course, held up and will be going before the Illinois Supreme Court, was the idea mm-hmm. of giving public defenders offices more money, giving the counties more money, because this is ultimately going to increase perhaps the workload of a public defender. I guess what I'll ask is, do you think that's a good idea, and were you preparing for maybe more work, or at least a more complicated process before the law was put on hold?
7: Yeah, I mean, in, in short, yes, there's there's, there's, a, there's a, a real a lack of funding for public defender's offices across the state. That's a That's a separate problem from the Safety Act. I think the safety act kind of touched on it and realized that you know part of part of implementing the safety act is going to require a lot of new procedures a lot of additional time and resources that uh, are going to strain some already strained offices and uh, part of part of the safety act was realizing that but i think it goes deeper than that and i think the supreme court the illinois supreme court is looking into right now some of the uh, so sort the of real lack of resources and funding that go into the, the public defender's offices. So, uh, y- to, to answer your other question, yes, we were preparing to uh, to implement the Safety Act and, and the pretrial fairness portion of it. Um, and I think I think it was going to be uh, it was going to be tough because it does require uh, more time and more uh, more resources toward public defense.
0: For sure, we're chatting with Benjamin Lawson from Lawson O'Brien. All right, I ask uh, most folks who come on, most lawyers, for their first time on uh, Let's Get Legal. Was there a scene in a movie or a TV show that made you want to be a lawyer? What was it that l- dr- that drove you to law?
7: Ooh. Uh, I, I watched a bit of Law and Order, but no, no particular uh, <laughs> particular scene or, or movie or anything. Um, no, I, I think I've always I've always liked the idea of uh, trying to get help and give back to people. Um, I, I like the, the aspect of the job that, uh, that involves some degree of counseling, you know, they, they call attorneys counselors. And I think that's, that's completely true. I, you know, half of what I do in my office is basically, uh, counseling in, in some sense. So I, I do like that aspect of it. And, and I think, uh, it, it, does, it feels good to uh, to be able to help people out sometimes.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, right. I mean, absolutely. And there is something about, and I talk with this about whether it's a public defender or we've got other great defense attorneys that come on here about that ultimate question of that even the worst villain out there deserves a chance at a defense, and that while while that boggles the mind, I think most people get it. I think most people do understand that even the most heinous acts deserve a, a, a defense simply because this is the system we have the system we believe in and you can't believe in it all the way if you don't believe in the idea of even the worst getting a defense not saying that that's who you're always defending men but i i just i do think most people get it when you when you break it down that way
7: yeah and and you know it, you can also think of it like you know the the prosecution they they always have a trained and experienced attorney uh, on their side the the state is represented by the prosecutor's office, that wasn't always the case for defendants. I mean, up until basically Gideon versus Wainwright in the the 60s, uh, people had to represent themselves and go up against, every time, they had to go up against a trained, experienced attorney. But the the, the whole point of having a public defender is to, to even the playing field a little bit so that if somebody is accused of a crime, they do have somebody there who at least knows the system a little bit has been around before and can give them advice
0: about it. I have to admit, I did not know that, that that Gideon versus Wainwright was in the '60s and that that was the ultimate decision that led to public defenders. I always assumed that was part of a bedrock of the original interpretation of the Constitution. So, public defenders really weren't a thing until the '60s.
7: Yeah, yeah, that, that's the seminal case that wow. essentially created the uh, the public defender system throughout the states. It, it did not used to be. Uh, Widespread that, that everyone. I mean, it is. You're right. It's in the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution that you're entitled to an attorney. But the interpretation of that was kind of narrow uh, for for a long time. I think uh, it used to it used to be true that in the federal in federal court you would have one, but in state courts uh, it was not common to have an attorney appointed for you. Interesting. Well,
0: you learn something new every day on this show. All right, Ben, we appreciate you joining us. Who should be reaching out to you? I know you guys do work in Kankakee County, uh, Iroquois County, Will County as well. Uh, what sorts mm-hmm. of folks should be reaching out to you if they need some help?
7: Well, like I said, we do anything that involves uh, going to court. So if it's, uh, if it's family cases, criminal defense, uh, we do plenty of that stuff. And and. A lot of civil litigation as well, even down to small claims. So, yeah, anybody in those three counties in particular, uh, Will County, Iroquois County, but especially Kankakee, we, we do quite a lot of litigation in all three.
0: All right. Ben, I really appreciate connecting. We'll do this again soon, okay? Yeah, thanks, John. I appreciate it. Oh, and by the way, the website is com, and they got a phone number up there as well, 815-450-9702, 815-450-9702. That's uh, LawsonO'Brien.com. All right, Ben, take care, all right? Thank you, John. Yeah, good to check up with them again. All right, it's 2.52. I think I've settled my brain on an answer <laughs> in terms of where I land on this sheriff thing. Bob made me think real hard at the top of the hour. Uh, I think I have an answer. Your thoughts, too. Any final thoughts on uh, whether sheriffs or local officials should be allowed to interpret laws how they see fit and prosecute or arrest people based on their interpretations of the Constitution? Boy, it's an interesting debate. We've had some really great thoughts on it. We've got a couple more minutes for a few more after this on WGN. All right. Just about done here with Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. Uh, The 708 uh, Dennis from Forest Park had an interesting point. Uh, this is going back to Mayor Lightfoot's um, email from her staff suggesting that CPS students for credit could volunteer for the Lightfoot campaign, which, of course, at the very least, it was an icky crossover of the line that is between the idea of that the mayor obviously you know appoints people who run Chicago public schools, et cetera, uh, to ask students to work for her campaign that. I don't think anyone out there didn't feel that that was icky, whether it was illegal or not. There's some debate there. But Dennis pointed out that most schools have a program where students are to volunteer for community service. Um, Yeah, and I agree. And I think Dennis is making this point, too, in his text that I think there was a right way to do it. Right. Like, I agree. It would be great for students to volunteer uh, for uh, candidates for the office in city or, or volunteer for the Chicago Board of Elections. I think what the mayor's office could have done is send, "Hey look, students can volunteer for any of the campaigns, right? Here's a general email that will be distributed to all the campaigns then if you want to volunteer. Or here's a list, there's no what, there's 9 candidates in the race right now. Here's a list of all the 9 emails for which you could reach if a student wanted to choose a campaign to work for with the candidate that most aligns with their views." And then maybe some do go work for Mayor Lightfoot's campaign. Okay, but at least you – even the playing field there. There was a way to do it, and there was also a way to apologize for what happened. Uh, Both of those failed miserably, and in fact, it took three or four comments to clarify. Um, I won't go into this much longer, but I think there was a right way to do it in the mayor's office and a wrong way. Um, So many discussions going on. we got some great thoughts about federal and state laws and the divide between those. A lot of callers – you know, I've been asking about the assault weapons ban, either in favor of it or against it. And that really is an important question and a debate to have. And, uh, Marianne, I know that you feel like, uh, that you agree with this law and disagree with what the police are doing. Am I summing that up right, Mary? Marianne? Yeah. Hi. How you doing? Good. I, what, and I, and I, I, I agree with you, right? That the police shouldn't determine what a law is. Do you feel that way about laws you disagree with, though? Do you feel like your local officials should still defend the law, even if it's not one that you like, Marianne?
8: Um, Offhand, I can't think of a law that I really don't like.
0: Right. But Um, but you could see the point of someone saying, well, what if it was a law that you hated? Would you want your local officials arresting people for it? I guess that's what makes it a tough question, Marianne.
8: You know what? It depends on the law. right? If it's something that's really, really, really minor okay, panhandling in the street or something like that, you just shoo them away. Um, I had told your producer, uh, back during the summer, somebody had the nerve to call your station during the day, identify himself as a Chicago policeman. He said he does not believe in the bike lanes that are painted on the streets, and he will not give anybody a ticket that rides in the bike lane. And he rides in the bike lane in his private vehicle.
0: I remember that phone call, Marianne. Hey, we're running out of time, but I know what you're saying and kind of getting at. And I appreciate your thoughts on the Mary. That's Marianne, the idea being that, hey, if it's a law and it's a painted bike lane, please follow it. I'd agree with that. Here's where I ultimately land on it. Bob brought up some great points early in the hour that if you were to have a law saying if you're a certain religion, you have to wear an emblem. Of course, I think we're all knowing what that alludes to. Would I want a sheriff to defend that law? And the answer is, of course, no. And then I asked Bob, but what if a local law official didn't agree with child endangerment laws and, and felt that a five-year-old could wander the streets aimlessly on their selves? Do we want that part? Do we want the sheriffs uh, to, to say, ah, we're not going to defend that law? Of course we wouldn't. We, and I guess the ultimate thing is we can come up with extremes on both sides of this. And what about is to say, well, what about this? What about that? But ultimately, if it is such a, a debated issue like we currently have now, it should be up to the courts. And we should let the courts to decide because it clearly is up for debate.